We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Klaus Badenhagen, who covers Taiwan for German media. Good evening. And on the telephone by Jieting Ye of Cataclan Media. Good to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing a possible end in sight for a four-month stay at the Taoyuan International Airport by two Chinese asylum seekers, comments by a German government official about Taiwan and China, a dispute over feed-in tariff rates for offshore wind power prices, the arrest of some human traffickers, and the death of Taiwan's so-called bikini hiker. But we'll begin with a slap in the face, that being a physical attack on Culture Minister Zhang Lijun by a 67-year-old former entertainer slash singer Lisa Jung. The singer slapped the minister across the face at an annual spring festival for television celebrities, which was hosted by the Care for Entertainers Foundation in Taipei. And Jung has reportedly told media on numerous occasions this week that she struck the minister because she opposes plans to repurpose the National Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall and remove references to the former president. Now, standing on the steps of the Ministry of Culture earlier this week, after the slap Zhang told the throng of reporters that went there, and she went there to apologise, of course, uh, that she acted on impulse after losing control of her emotions during the banquet and that her actions set an incorrect example. However, she also went on to continue to criticise the culture minister's plans to, in her words, promote the demolition of the Chiang Kai-shek memorial. Now, Lisa Zhang was unable to give her apology to the culture minister because, of course, the culture minister just happened to be busy that morning. There you go. Read into that what you will. But the government and opposition political parties have been condemning Jung's actions this week with the DPP going, this is out of order and you shouldn't do it. But the KMT and other opposition parties have taken a slightly different route with the KMT's vice chairman, Haolong Bin, saying the slap was a result of the government forcing people to rebel, which some said was a bit of a stretch and he also went on to accuse the ruling party of hypocrisy for promoting violence when it was the opposition party but calling for an end to it now it's in power and speaking to reporters Howe listed a whole heap of incidents when DPP lawmakers have gotten physical but he conveniently omitted several incidents which were initiated by the KMT and other opposition parties so jetting a slap in the face a good thing a bad thing obviously it's not a good thing to hit a politician but the woman the Lisa Jung said that she was she apologised for doing it, but she was not going to apologise for the protest. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think everybody knows um, that the slap itself is not much of you know a news, right? But then the um, the, the emotions and also the the policy that's sort of in discussion, that's in dispute, is. Um, a very, very big topic within Taiwanese society. I mean, we're talking about um, transitional justice, and we're talking about um, you know sort of ethical, uh, ethnic um, tensions, right? And so I think those are sort of the big topics that are um, you know behind this particular incident today. Well, I think, of course, everybody who's in his right mind says violence against um, politicians or in the political contents is totally unacceptable. But then you see these attempts to somehow justify, to understand why she did this. And if you spin it this way, I'm just worried this might be a dangerous precedent to lower the threshold for, for other people who maybe think 
they are unhappy with something the government does or they need to do something about it. And um, Taiwan has had some political uh, attacks or even assassination attempts in the past. And I think everybody responsible should be really careful not to make this appear like too harmless and let her off with a slap on the wrist here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, my, I, what I'm saying is, um, you know, I, this kind of reminds me of some of the incidents that we've had in the United States as well, right, over, um, you know, race relations, right? I think, um, you know, the, the people who, for example, like Hao Longbin and the people who are on, um, you know, who are sympathizing, uh, sympathizers of uh, Lisa Cheng's um I guess political views, um, you know, not necessarily her actions, but you know, definitely her political views over um, transitional justice. Like, what? Um, it, I think we have to sort of understand that there is, um, you know, quite a lot of anxiety on the people who, you know, felt that their culture, you know, their sort of traditional Chinese, proper Chinese culture, um, you know, was the mainstream culture by default in Taiwan for so many years, and now that's, you know, being challenged, and I believe rightfully so, um, but it is being challenged, and, you know, they do feel that anxiety, so, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, these, if you're going to move forward with transitional justice and going to look for, uh, move forward with looking back into history to, um, you know, sort of really uncover and to, you know, hold people accountable, you know, I think these um, reactions are going to, you know, these types of reactions are going to, um, you know, we're going to be keep, we're going to be seeing more of them in the future. I'm just wondering, can the, could the government do anything to get these people on board, those who see transitional justice as basically a dangerous ploy to destroy the Chinese heritage? I mean, the government has been pretty clear in saying that the main aim of the whole transitional justice thing is reconciliation, is um, getting to know what happened. It's not about punishment but that's not getting through if you are on the other side of the fence you you just don't see this you only see an attack on 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 your values and on your what you identify with so is there any way to um get these people away from their extreme positions or is that just something taiwan needs to live with now um i I'm actually curious if somebody um, from the KMT side, right, or, you know, so the Pan Blue side would come out and say, all right, guys, you know, let's, you know, at least take this issue and, um, you know, kind of speak to it on our own terms and say, okay, we admit and we realize that the KMT of the past has done some terrible things. And, you know, we want to be the one that's, um, you know, going ahead of everybody to, um, disclose, you know, and become transparent and, you know, basically admit to all those mistakes that um, wherever they're found and then move on, right? And so I think if, you know, a politician, you know, say um, Jiang Wanan, for example, right? I mean, he is um, a blood descendant of um, Chiang Kai-shek, right? So if he comes out and really, you know, kind of take the lead on this, I think he would get, um, I mean, I don't know how many people, but I think he will get some people on board, right? To say, okay, we're going to make a break, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to take this issue into our own hands, we're going to look into the past and then, you know, clean clean house, basically, and then have a new start, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think there might be some value in that. 
Um, and actually, Klaus, I um, was wondering if you, since you know, uh, Gavin introduced you as the uh, representative of all of Germany, um, you know, how has Germany sort of moved forward from um, you know, World War II and the Nazi days what, you know, with these kind of what Jim, um What's actually more, of, um, I think Taiwan is looking at in the German history right now is the transition from the East German dictatorship and um, what happened after reunification. But in both cases, I mean, the end, the end of the Nazis and the end of East Germany, you had clear winners and losers. I mean, the old system just broke down and the other side had won. And so it was easier to come to terms with what happened and um, appoint the blame. So in the case of Taiwan, of course, the old system is still there and uh, there was not a clear break. So I think Taiwan actually does better to also look at countries like South Africa or Rwanda, where you had um, transitional justice commissions really trying to reconcile both sides, which is not what needed to happen in Germany, because as I said, the old systems just just broke down. And we shall move on now. And the Mainland Affairs Council this Thursday said that it's now considering allowing two Chinese asylum seekers who have been stranded at Taoyuan International Airport for four months to enter Taiwan on the basis of professional exchanges. Now, according to Council Deputy Minister Chou Chui Jung, the proposal is still under discussion and will require the cooperation of both the said Chinese nationals. But the Mainland Affairs Council official says the matter will be handled in accordance with laws and regulations and take into account international precedents in similar cases and human rights protections. Now, 43-year-old Yang Kefun and 63-year-old Liu Xinglian arrived at the airport on September the 27th on a flight from Thailand. They were scheduled, of course, to continue on to Beijing, but they didn't get on that flight and instead claimed asylum at the airport on the grounds of political persecution. Now, while they both hold refugee certificates issued by the United Nations, they've still not been allowed to leave the restricted area of the airport because they lack the required documentation to enter Taiwan even though they've got the UN passes. So Klaus, an end to the odyssey of living in the airport for four months for these two Chinese chaps on the horizon. Yeah, you really wonder how this comes about right now. I mean, they've been there since September. In October, the government said, yeah, we'll, we'll try to deal with this. We will not send them back to any place where they face persecution. But now the Mainland Affairs Council comes out and says, yeah, maybe we can do something. Well, just a week ago, there was an AFP report which made international news. And all of a sudden, their story was um, all over the world, basically. And I can't help the suspicion that the government maybe felt... Um, the need to do something now that the story was really out in the open again. And, of course, if the Tsai government is trying to push its human rights credentials as one of the reasons to for the international community to support Taiwan, then it doesn't look too good that um, not only don't you have a law how to deal with refugees, you also let political refugees from China stay in your airport for four months and basically leave them in limbo. So my suspicion is that this international attention really was one of the reasons that there's some movement here finally. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I agree with what uh, Klaus said and I it, it just doesn't seem right to leave them in limbo, right? And, you know, I, I think the word limbo really <clears throat> kind of reflects um, kind of tie the Thai government's um, attitude towards sort of specific issues dealing with China sometimes, right? So sometimes we see the Thai government and Thai government herself being very 
you know, taking a very strong stance and, you know, kind of standing up and speaking up. And sometimes we see this kind of, you know, sort of wavering back and forth, right? And so I think, um, you know, I think the Thai government, you know, with these, you know, kind of more specific technical um, sort of isolated incidents like that, they really should have a better way of, you know, sort of figuring out, okay, how exactly do we deal with this? Um, you know, how do we not seem like we're trying to please everybody and end up pleasing nobody? You know, and so I think, you know, this is a pretty straightforward case um, now that there's, inter- especially now there's international attention on this, um, you know, Thai, if the Thai government um, doesn't act, then yeah, it does look really bad, um, especially when the president has been talking about human rights and um, freedom and, you know, rule of law um, as, you know, compared to the um, the other side. So, so but I mean, Klaus, I mean, obviously, if they let them in, somebody's got to pay for their welfare. <laughs> yeah. You think that's what Taiwanese public is worried about? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, who knows? Um, well, the reasons that are brought forward again and again to why does not Taiwan just simply accept Chinese political refugees, period, is um, mostly, well, maybe there would be too many coming or maybe there would be some spies amongst them trying to, China's trying to get those um, people into Taiwan. But um, also not to incense China even more on this front if you already have your hands full dealing with them in other aspects. So maybe the Thai government is saving this for another day when they feel they need to up the up the yeah, well pressure or to find some new ways to let China look bad. Maybe this will happen. But um, as of now, I don't... Well, I don't think, like many countries all over the world, Taiwanese public is not so eager for taking in a lot of refugees, and the government also doesn't need more interior uh, uh, trouble. Um, They already have enough other um, policies that are under criticism by the Taiwanese public as it is. I mean, Klaus Jerting, Klaus raised a point there about taking in refugees and the local public maybe not liking them. But do you think, obviously, in Taiwan there will be a difference if Taiwan took in two Syrian refugees or two Chinese refugees? Do you think the public in Taiwan would look at them differently? Um, I mean, I, I definitely think the public would look at them differently. Um, just because China, obviously, is uh, you know so such has a, such a special place in you know Taiwanese policy or all I, or aspects of life in Taiwan, I think even with Chinese refugees, you know, sort of across the board, right? You have um, you know people who are more on the Taiwan independence side saying, yes, of course we should you know support these people who are against um, the communist regime in China. Yet then again, there is the national security, despite um, problem, or you know, there's simply a you know sort of this fear of more people from China coming to Taiwan, right? Whereas on the pan blue side, on the one hand, you have well, you know, these are you know we don't want to provoke Beijing even more, and then again, it's like well, I mean, you talk about you know our Chinese brethren, you know, like our Chinese compatriots all the time. Well, here's your chance to help them out. So what are you going to do? Right, so I think it is a. Um, it, it's not. It, it's a topic that the Taiwanese public has not come to terms or has not um, come into contact with as often as I guess it like one might expect, and so there just hasn't been enough um, sort of public debate 
about this particular question, and I think it is um, you know it cuts many the issue cuts many ways. I think with Syrian refugees, I think people um, you know short long story short probably look at it you know with a very different calculus, right? I think um, in that sense, I think people are probably more worried about you know how are they going to quote unquote you know assimilate into Taiwanese society. Um, you know, or is there going to be some um, prejudice or some sort of racism involved, um, or even just some xenophobia, right? And I think with China, you know, the political dimensions, the um, even the national security dimensions, and just you know, sort of the cultural affinities of people, um, it's going to make a very complicated issue. Right, and as we have Klaus with us today, we'll talk some German-Taiwan issues now, and we'll begin at the beginning with German Foreign Minister, whose name I'm going to butcher, sorry Klaus, Heiko Maas, voicing his opposition to China's threat to use military force against Taiwan. Now, Maas's remarks in the German National Parliament a week ago came after the Germany-Taiwan Parliamentary Friendship Group Chairman, Klaus-Peter Wilsch, asked the government for a response to Xi Jinping's January the 2nd comments. So, I mean, the German government, and the, does it speak out for Taiwan very often there? Well, you you mentioned it just now. Um, the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, he only said something about Taiwan because he had to, because this parliamentarian asked him in a Q&A session in the parliament and he had to say something. I'm pretty sure that the German foreign ministry would not have issued any statement or press release regarding Taiwan criticizing China if it hadn't been for this situation. And also in his reply to this question, the foreign minister, he avoided actually saying the word Taiwan. He just said, in this situation, as always, we will make very sure that um, the threat of violence is unacceptable. And um, I don't know, maybe he was afraid that would be a soundbite where they would take this video clip where he says Taiwan, 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 and he wanted to avoid that. But I think it's, it's pretty telling. But to the German, obviously, what about the German-Taiwan Parliamentary Friendship Group? They obviously come here a lot. Yeah, they are pretty active. I mean, those are, uh, I don't know, 30-something parliamentarians, and they um, try to do what they can. They try to put the subject on the agenda from time to time, as they did now. But, of course, in the end, what really matters is what the government is doing. And this was one of the really rare occasions where a high-ranking government official really publicly said something about Taiwan at all. Um, talking about the Taiwan policy, the Germany, like many countries, has a one-China policy. But it's um, very different from the American one, for example, that says, well, there's only one China, it's a People's Republic, we accept that, but we leave the question open of whether Taiwan belongs to that or not. So what happened in Germany was back in 2007, Angela Merkel received the Dalai Lama in her chancellery, in her official office. And that caused a huge outcry from the Chinese side, and they threatened to break off all relations, basically. And the then foreign minister, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who is now the German federal president, he had to mend relations again somehow. And then he invited the then Chinese foreign minister to Berlin in early 2008. And they had a joint press conference basically saying, yeah, well, now we have overcome our differences. But in that press statement to that press conference... German Foreign Ministry also said we still stand by our one-China policy, and the German one-China policy includes viewing Taiwan as a part of the Chinese territory. And, well, they didn't say People's Republic of China, but still, I mean, that still stands. Um, no, 
no no government will just uh, change their positions um, all the time. So this is still the bottom line. Um, Germany will speak out for Taiwan in cases like this when they say and this is against international norms, threatening violence, but they will not go out on a limb and really try to make this a subject to alienate China with, especially not since China is so important as an export market for the German economy. They're buying the German machinery, they're buying the German cars. And um, over the last two years, there's been a change in the German attitude towards China with Xi getting more and more assertive and um, Chinese companies trying to take over more and more German companies. There have been some cases now where that has been vetoed. So... Um, yeah, the official side has become more suspicious or more careful in dealing with China now. But of course, they know that Taiwan is a really hot subject for China, and they will not be the ones who go out all guns blazing in defense of Taiwan. Well, that's the official channels. What about the regular man, man or woman on the street, Klaus? I mean, if you said to them, Taiwan, what would they think? Thailand? No, I mean, uh, this, <laughs> yeah, we've all heard that too many times. Um, maybe they they will come up with something like, yeah, Chiang Kai-shek and um, nationalist China. And um, really, I think as in, Jieting, I suspect in the U.S. it's not very different. I mean, people have somehow heard about Taiwan, but they are not really aware of the intricacies of the situation we are facing here right now. Right? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. But I think in, also in the United States, there's in, um, been a... Um, very um, subtle, but I think definite, um, you know, kind of increase in awareness of Taiwan, um, if anything, at least as a cultural um, phenomenon, right? So there's more um, restaurants and are being reported as Taiwanese or specifically, you know, from Taiwan. Um, there's more Taiwanese um, brands that are making headways in the U.S. market. You know, obviously that... Um, doesn't overnight translate into any policy changes, um, especially not something that, you know, that's as fundamental as, you know, the one China policy. I think um, in terms of uh, just, you know, this particular in incident, I think there is um, sort of a uptick in or sort of a shift in the way that um, the Western media and also Western politicians talk about Taiwan and China, right? So, you know, if you go back, say, 10, you know, 15 years ago, Taiwan was sort of seen as the troublemaker, right? People are like, you know, China, you, we need to, we need China aboard on a lot of international um, matters, um, climate change and so on, and trade and so on and so forth. So, you know, Taiwan, if you can just, if you can just learn to get along, you know, don't cause any trouble, right? But now, um, you know, with a, a bunch of different factors, right, with uh, Xi Jinping's um, attitudes and his policies, um, but also, you know, as China grows and expands into international, other international affairs, um, I think right now the, the view is that, you know, Taiwan is kind of the victim here, right? And Taiwan is, you know, trying to do its best and, you know, China is kind of, you know, not letting Taiwan, you know, China is the one that's not now that's um, kind of causing the trouble. So I think there's definitely a shift in the conversation and at least a shift in the tone. Um, again, that doesn't translate overnight into um, big policy changes, but you know, it, I think it is a trend that's worth watching. We have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week and a dispute over feed-in tariff rates for offshore wind power prices erupted this week and has seen Danish power company Orsted suspending investment here in Taiwan amid what it describes as a re-evaluation of its investment in the country. Other companies including Yushan Energy, Northland Power, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and WPD Taiwan Energy have also issued a statement criticising the policy. Now the government last year announced a proposal to set the rate for 2019 at 5.1 NT per kilowatt hour and that was down 12.71% from 5.8 NT per kilowatt in 2018. Now the companies say the government attracted offshore wind power investment by promising a feed-in tariff rate of 6 NT per hour and such a steep cut will negatively impact Taiwan's reputation in the global market. So to get a better understanding of the issue affecting the future of offshore wind power development here, I spoke with Hal Falls, a manager at the Miaoli Wind Company. Good evening, Hal. Good evening, Gavin. So, can you start by explaining what this feed-in tariff rate means and what it actually is? Uh, the feed-in tariff rate is the amount of money that Thai Power will pay to the wind farm operators for every kilowatt that they generate and put onto the grid. Right, I mean, and how much kilowatts do an average offshore wind farm generate per day so our listeners can get a sort of a rough estimate of how much money we're talking about? Well, right now, the offshore wind generators, each one that they want to put in, can generate up to 5 megawatts or 5,000 kilowatts per hour during the windy season. And let's say a wind farm could be any place from 30 turbines up to maybe 60 turbines. The feed-in tariff rate, once it is established by, by let's say, the Bureau of Energy or TPC, and it's offered to the wind farm operators, this feed-in tariff rate is locked in for 20 years. So the rate that you get in 2019 is the same rate that they will be getting in 2039. That's why it's a big deal. It does not change over the years. Right, of course, the government's trying to change it, which, of course, um, some companies have said this is negatively affecting Taiwan's reputation in the global offshore market. They have two different rates, Gavin, the rate for offshore and the rate for onshore. So leading up to this period, they've been offering the offshore operators... uh, 5.8 NT per kilowatt. I'm I'm rounding the numbers off a little bit. And and as I said, this is over a 20-year period. But they've given the offshore operators two options. Number one, you can take the 5.8 and you can live with that for 20 years. Or we will do a step up and then step down rate. So for the first 10 years... We will give you an extra 2.3, so making it like um, 7.1 NT per kilowatt hour. And this allows the, the offshore operators uh, the chance to recoup their money faster. Then after 10 years, they will, they will take the, the 5.8 and they will lower it down to 3.5. Okay, so it would drop from like 7.1 down to 3.5 after 10 years. And then so it all averages out to, to this 5.8 NT. But is that normal practice? I don't know if it's normal practice, but it is really, it was a huge incentive 
for these foreign offshore operators to come in and spend the billions of NT, the billions of U.S. dollars or euros to install these, these major wind farms because they were looking at this huge tariff rate and saying, well, okay, we can do our investment, we can get our money back quickly, and then after we have our money back, we can, we can then make more money with even, even with the lower 3.8 rate. So what has happened recently and what has been proposed, and it hasn't 100% been you know, set out yet or, or, or set in stone, is the government has come in and said, all right, first of all, we're going to remove the step up and step down. So it's just going to be a flat rate for 20 years. And then they lowered the feed-in tariff rate down to 5.1. So they've given them a 13% reduction plus removal of the up-and-down rate. That's a big deal to these guys. Um, you're looking at billions of dollars. Personally, do you think this, this makes the Thai administration look either greedy or incompetent? I think it makes them look confused. I don't want to say greedy or incompetent. I, I think that's, that's too much of a stretch. I think... What has happened is they've gone back to the panel of experts and they always hire out from the BOE to, to local institutions to do studies. And I think nobody is really sure exactly where they've gotten their full data for study. They have said that they know that turbine rates to buy these generators has gone down over the last couple of years. So based on that, they feel comfortable lowering the tariff rate. But in fact, you know, several years ago, the government put out a policy. They, they wanted to co-fund two development sites to, to get an understanding of what the costs are. They've got one of the sites completed. It's been there for a couple of years. And the second site is still under development. And as a matter of fact, it costs them triple what they originally expected to put in the two, um, and 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 there's no cost estimates or no cost comparisons for the second uh, site project just because it's not completed yet. So everybody feels that they're kind of jumping the gun here with lowering the rates before everybody understands what the rates really should be. Have the government inspectors been sort of studying wind farms in other countries, in Europe, for example? Oh, I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. But it would be hard to say exactly what data they have used, but I'm sure that they have studied international wind farms. I mean, what else? I mean, we don't have any wind farms in Taiwan yet, so offshore wind farms yet, so they have to be studying those. But... Overseas is not Taiwan. Overseas is, it's a mature industry. Taiwan is still an infant industry. Overseas, they have all of these install boats. They have, they have their own generator manufacturers, their own tower manufacturers, their own gearbox manufacturers. They've got everything. They've got an industry. We don't have that industry yet. We have to import everything. They are trying to manufacture the towers and the foundations locally, but there's nothing else developed. Plus, these install boats, when you think about offshore, you, you can't have a, bo- a boat bobbling around out there 
when you're trying to lift something that is, you know, 100 meters above the sea level. So they have these very specialized boats that have legs. Um, we don't have any. They would have to import them. They'd have to make them. We just don't have the industry here yet. Right. Do you think possibly the government rushed into this without actually stepping back and thinking about it? I think they probably could have. I think they want the offshore industry. This offshore industry has been a goal for for many years, and it's it's good. I mean, we've got wind. We've got space offshore. I just think Taiwan originally wanted to develop their own offshore industry. They wanted to make the towers. They want to make the generators. They want to make the blades. And that's great. And I think a lot of the hang-up and, and the hold-up that it didn't move forward is that we were waiting, Taiwan was waiting for these offshore, these, these foreign companies to come in and, and do, like, technology transfer, and it hasn't happened yet, so it slowed down the industry. And now that it has slowed it down... I think Taiwan is more willing to import everything just to manufacture what we can here and install what we can now and slowly grow the industry, which is the right way to go. But they offered, they offered a rate. They offered a rate to these, you know, to these big offshore people like Orsted, who's, who is the company that's really said recently that they're going to back off for a while to see what the, is really going to happen for the feed-in tariff rate. They have overseas experience. They have boats. They've installed hundreds, if not thousands, overseas. But they don't have the right equipment here yet, and they were offered a huge um, tariff rate, feed-in tariff rate, to bring their technology, bring their billions of dollars over here to do the install, and then suddenly they're like, well, we changed our mind. That really hurts our reputation in Taiwan. That was me in conversation with Hal Falls of the Miaoli Wind Company. Now, the National Immigration Agency has detained seven people this week in connection with the disappearance last month of 148 Vietnamese nationals who arrived in Taiwan, of course, as tourists, a story we've covered numerous times over the past weeks. But the arrests involving human traffickers and 148 violations of the Human Trafficking Prevention Act has put a whole new look at this. Now, of course, the government has long vowed to clamp down on human trafficking and, you know, the missing Vietnamese are slowly being located... But, of course, Klaus, human trafficking, the government vowing to clamp down human rights. We go back to human rights here. And you've got 148 violations of human trafficking. You've got several arrests. And the government are seeking four other people who are in Vietnam. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've touched upon this in the course of the show a few times now. It's what the government says they are doing and what it says about the values they are upholding and then what's actually happening on the ground here. So if Taiwan wants to be seen as the country that's an example for human rights in the region, then it has to do something against cases like this. It has to really crack down on, on human traffickers, just as, for example, the fisheries sector is under fire from the European Union because of the working conditions for fishermen there, and they are threatening not to buy the uh, fish from the Taiwanese uh, fishery industry anymore. So that also throws a really bad light on Taiwan. And, well, if you want the world to have sympathy for you, you just need to do more not to allow headlines like this to happen. You get your need to get your priorities right here. Jieting. Um, I mean, I definitely agree. Um, I think in the, there's sort of a strange situation where Taiwan, um, you know, has to stress that it is a democracy and, you know, has to sort of even kind of 
take the claim that it is the most vibrant democracy in Asia, right? And that's sort of its um, main um, selling point against uh, China, right? Um, but then again, Taiwan is um, a very young democracy, right? Um, just even getting the official government structures to be democratic, you know, took a very long time, right? There's still a lot of practices in um, the society and sort of in lesser uh, kind of known parts of the 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 country, right? So as Klaus mentioned, the fisheries, you know, the um, human trafficking, you know, I, I think these things are just only coming to light um, because of uh, investigative reporters and, um, you know, cases like the one that we're talking about today. Um, you know, I think there these practices has been going on for a very long time. And, um, you know, I think the government now has to, if they really want to sell the fact that Taiwan is a democracy, they have to do more than most other countries normally do, right? Because they they have to catch up to kind of Western standards. And yet, um, you know, Taiwan has only been, you know, doing this for, you know, 10, you know, like for a number of decades, right? And so I think um, it is definitely a pretty daunting task. Um, then again, you know, this is what President Tsai, you know, this is, this is the thing that she says that got her other accolades internationally and, you know, just had her you know, kind of boosted her, her support numbers, right? So, you know, I think that it's definitely important to, you know, walk the walk, right? And, you know, really, you know, crack down on these things and, you know, not to, you know, not let people say, you know, of course, yeah, you know, that's just all talk, so. Well, we can even look at another field. Um, there's human rights, but for example, also the fight against climate change, environmental policies. So you have the Taiwanese government saying we are really committed to being a model um, implementing um, climate change, anti-climate change policies here. But then you look at the energy prices in Taiwan, the price for electric energy, the price for gas is kept artificially low because state-owned companies are the biggest players on the market and the government is basically dictating the prices here. So it's easier to say we are banning some plastic bags, we are banning some plastic straws that also gets you some cheap international headlines, but to actually do something that maybe makes you less popular with your own voters at home, um, Taiwanese government is also shying away from this. And of course, giving the migrant workers more rights in Taiwan would also mean making it more expensive for the private households who are employing them or for the companies who are employing them. And um, yes, I think it's a case of they talk the talk, but they don't really walk the walk. I, I, think, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, enforcement and, you know, as Klaus said, the resources that can be put into it, you know, but I, there's also um, more sort of more pervasive social attitudes, right? You know, if you just kind of look at the way people, you know, treat or even just the way people think about their, um, you know, domestic workers from Southeast Asia or migrant workers, right? They're not, um, they're, they're usually not thought of as, you know, one of us, right? They're not sort of part of our you know, community, right? They're here to, you know, we, we pay them and they come here to, to work and then they leave, right? And I think, you know, there is also a little bit of, there's some racism that, you know, kind of plays into that, right? So, you know, I, I think Taiwan still has some ways to go. 
And before we go this week, the death of Taiwan internet celebrity Gigi Wu, who was better known by the moniker the Bikini Hiker, propelled the island into the international headlines this week. And members of the Nanto County Emergency Services Mountain Rescue Team found Wu's body 43 hours after she called for assistance after falling into a 30-meter deep gorge. Now, apparently, the 36-year-old gained fame online for hiking mountains across Taiwan and posting pictures of herself in bikinis on her Facebook page after completing. The hikes. Now, of course, pictures of Wu in her bikinis on the top of Taiwan's mountains basically made was all over the press this week, all over the world. But here in Taiwan, it's well, okay, people have mourned her. She had followers on our Facebook page, but there's been questions about should she have been in the area she was in when she was in it, because apparently she didn't have a permit to hike in the area. Klaus, obviously you read about the bikini hiker. Yeah, I'm one of those who never heard about the lady before this happened, and many people I talked to are the same. So she was apparently not that famous. And the reason that this bit of news made international headlines is, of course, because you can put the word bikini in the headline. If she had just been any hiker or maybe any Instagram celebrity, um, it. It wouldn't have made this kind of waves internationally. So that said, I mean, this lady died a really gruesome death there. I think she was lying, lying there um, for thirty something hours before she was found, and by then she had frozen to death. So it, it would be easy to make some tasteless jokes, uh, but um, it's not what you should do. And also, appointing blame to her. Yeah, well, if she went there on her own and she didn't have a permit and she needed one, then of course it's not a very smart move. But I think. Overall, what why is what does this story have to tell us, except for what's obvious and what happened there? Any lessons to draw from this? Jetting, did you read about the bikini hiker in America?、Um, yeah, I mean, I saw the headline, and I, I, the first glance, I would, you know, the headline basically said, "Bikini,、uh, bikini mountain climber freezes to death," right? And then, you know, you think, "Wow, okay, like, you know, that, that's, you know, the." That's a pretty funny headline, right? And obviously, don't climb high, tall, cold mountains. You know, wearing clothes, nothing. But you know, I I think after you know, you kind of look into this a little bit. First and foremost, is a tragedy, right? It, it, you know, I I think、um, you know definitely, you know, heart goes out to、um, you know to to her and to her family. And yeah, I think other than the obvious, you know, I, I guess for people who are you know think twice before you try something super dangerous to you know get get attention on social media. But you know, on the other hand, well, you know, I, I think you, you cannot even blame her. She she did not fall down there because she was wearing the bikini at the time or something. I mean, it was not、right. directly related to what she was doing. It could happen to anyone. Hiking in the mountains,、yeah. and if you go on your yeah, own,、uh, well, that's、uh, obviously a mistake. To well, Gavin, what did you mention earlier about Central Mountain Range in January? Yeah, yeah, the Central Mountain Range in January is a very dangerous place, as is the Central Mountain Range in August. Basically, Probably, there、yeah. you go. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week here on Taiwan this week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Klaus Badenhagen. Nice to be here, thank you. And on the telephone by Jetting, yeah. Please have a safe weekend, everyone. <laughs> 
Japan. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.